All right, so he asked me just to do my testimony tonight because we didn't have time to prepare anything else. And, um, uh, you know, so I'm just going to share that with you. Revelations 5 verse 2, that's our opening scripture. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who is worthy in the world is, is a question asked by many people. And when I was a young man, I asked this question, is there anybody worthy on the earth that I might serve? I read books of the great kings of the earth. We used to read books in our days, before TV. You know, we only got TV much later on, so we read a lot. And I read books on the great kings of the earth, and I read stories of the great men of the earth. I read fiction of the great men of the earth, and I could never find an answer, you know. Who is worthy to follow? You know, we were all following Bruce Lee in those days, you know. You know what I mean? You know, we had a picture on the back of our doors in our rooms of Bruce Lee. You know? And, um, you know, you, those were like our heroes, you know. And then we would go to church and, you know, to Sunday school, and then they'd show Jesus with a very sad face and a halo around his head, handing out fishes. And, you know, as a young boy, you like, get the wrong idea, you know. You know, of Christianity, you think, no. Bruce Lee is the guy, you know what I mean? I'm going to be Bruce Lee, you know? And, um, you know, it's very disappointing to see Bruce Lee one day die from a, uh, from a, have an aspirin and die, you know? And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I read the books of King Arthur and his four and saw how he fell with Guinevere and, and Lancelot, you know, and I lost faith, you know, in the human race, you know, and all our heroes were drunkards and, and sex abusers and, you know, growing up, you know, you had no good role models. You know what I mean? It's like everybody just see the madness, you know, of the world, you know. And I was very disappointed, you know, and I stopped looking to man at one stage in my life, you know. I just was so seeing so much darkness that I just felt, you know, man's not the person to look to and I didn't know what else. And I had nothing else. And I think this can be the experience of many people, you know, man has disappointed us, you know. The human race has failed us, you know what I mean? And I was quite, uh, from a young boy, I was already thinking that, you know. So at an early age of one or two years old, I was taken from my mother, um, uh, my real mother, and placed in the care of a couple in Woodstock, you know, and um, uh, a family that, a uh, couple that was looking after, like, lost kids or something like that, you know. It wasn't a good house, it was a house of torture, pain and fear. And I learned at an early age that darkness isn't just a darkness, but a real terrifying place. You know, I learned to, I, le I understood fear at that age already, you know. And the funny thing is I can remember before I was three, I mean, that's crazy. I remember the house, everything that happened there, you know what I mean? It was a dark place. At, and um, I was removed from that home by the welfare and I was um, put in a foster care um, for a quite a middle, upper middle class family. You know, they stayed in Kenilworth and then they moved to Bishop's Court, you know. So, you know, it was, it's pretty upmarket family. But it was a house that had its own problems. And uh, I was pretty messed up and I'm sure they meant well, but they were terribly messed up as well. So the only thing that changed in the two houses was the price of the plates they threw at each other. You understand what I'm saying, you know? In the Woodstock home, they used to throw plates at each other, and in this house, they threw more expensive plates at each other. I can remember my foster mom sitting there with chicken in her hair, 
<laughs> peas in a nice bun that she had made in those days. You know, it was like, you know, what the heck the world coming to, you know? And, um, you know, a, a drink flowed in the house much, you know, and it wasn't a happy place at all. So I knew the face of fear, you know, I understood, you know, that Bruce Lee film, I come back to that because it had an impact on my life. You know, I remember watching that film and, you know, that demon that he kept fighting in his dreams. I knew exactly what he did with that thing. That's a, a, a demonic thing. And he was killed by that. I have no, no doubt whatsoever that that thing killed him in the end, you know. And uh, I knew that thing because it, it was in my life. You know, no one would ever guess because I was the naughtiest boy at school ever. You know, always causing trouble, always getting into fights. But nobody knew I wrestled with that thing. You know, it was like a shadow in my life. And sometimes it would win and sometimes I would win. And you, 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 don't, you, you do more and more dangerous stuff to try and overcome fear. You know, nobody knows that it's in your heart. Is anybody going to do anything naughty? I'm going to do it just to, and then you feel the fear, but you go do it anyway. You know, you try and conquer it. So I spent my whole life fighting this thing, you know. And, um, and I, when I saw that movie, I knew exactly what he was talking about. You know, it's a, a demon, I didn't know it was a demonic thing then, but it is. So, you know, I never felt loved at all in my life until 17 when I fell in love with my first girlfriend at school. You know, and, uh, that was the first time I actually, and it, it wasn't a good love because it's a obsessive love. You know what I mean? It's, uh, you know, you can't share with anybody love, you know, this is now your treasure. It's unhealthy, you know. And um, so that was the first time I ever felt love. I would never want my youth back and it holds no good memories. I'm quite happy to be on this side of my life now, about to stand in the door and go be with the Lord at some stage. You know what I mean? That life has not been a, uh, a happy life for me. You know, some people have happy childhoods. I didn't. One or two things happen to a boy's damage from an early age. He either withdraws or rebels. He either withdraws in himself, becomes reclusive, or he becomes an absolute horror from the pits. You know, and I rebelled. And in my anger, rage, and bitterness, I tried to destroy myself and all those around me. I was thrown out of schools, left, right, and center. You know, from standard eight, I just broke loose. And, uh, you know, and uh, got spelled from two schools and, you know, I, I landed up in homes, places of safety, even visits to prison. I was in a boys' home here in observatory that used to exist called Teen Center. You know, that was like one step away from industrial school. You know, and that's, they, the police used to come give us hidings at that school, you know. You could still go to school, but the discipline was hectic, you know. So, you know, I was just lost. I was on a journey to nowhere. I, I remember reading this poem, and I can't remember who the writer of this poem is. It says, who's in charge of the clattering train? The axles creak, the couple strain. The pace is hot and the points are near and sleep has deadened the driver's ear. The signals flash through the night in vain for death is in charge of the clattering train. And that was my life. I'm heading somewhere into deeper and darker things. I'm starting to spiral out of control. You know what I mean? And, you know, because of that rebellious heart and that angry heart that's in me, you know what I mean? I'm starting to get worse and worse. So I was in teen center at that stage. It was the last chance home for naughty boys. And it was run by Christians, but with a rod of iron. Every Sunday we had to attend the churches in the evenings. I'm in matric now and I'm 
um, the family had put me in Abbott's College because I, you know, giving me my one last chance type of thing at school. And uh, I used to go to Abbott's College from the school and come home. And the other guys used to go to Rhodes High and all nuts and bolts in Lansdowne and all those schools, you know. But anyway, so it was run by Christians. And every Sunday we had to attend uh, church meetings at, at night, you know. We had to be there. And one day I believed in Christ. 1979. You know, the, the speaker spoke with great conviction and power. And I actually believed what he said. And I've got a gun under my pillow upstairs. You know what I mean? You know, we naughty, you know. And, uh, but I, I actually believed what he said. And, and I believed that Jesus is above me. I believed him. I, I knew he was telling the truth. You know, and uh, I lay awake for a couple of nights as I struggled with this. You know, what am I going to do with this? But I couldn't face, you know, becoming a Christian. I thought, I'm going to have to walk around with this Bible under my arm. You know, and, you know, live this life, this miserable life. And there were so many things I wanted to do, you know. I wanted to sleep with girls, get drunk, go party store. And I desperately wanted to go to the army. I mean, that was my whole, that's what I ever wanted to be, ever since I can remember, you know. And I thought I couldn't do these things as a Christian. So I said no to the Lord, not now. I said, I'm not ready. And the Lord withdrew, that presence withdrew me. You know, you can't uh, take God for a pop, you know, and chose the world. And I said to God, I'm not ready yet. Maybe one day, you know. But Hebrews 3 verse 15 warns us, while it says today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. You know, God knew what was coming in my life. And he tried to reach me. And I think many of you can remember days like that in your life when you were young. When God spoke to you, you know what I mean? And we refused. And 20 years later, our lives are in ruins, divorced, broken homes. We got, you know, we wonder why. You know, and God was trying to stop that. So when God calls, you must answer now, not tomorrow. There may not be a tomorrow. No one told me as that young man uh, sitting in that home that there were consequences to all these sins that I was going to be doing. Because there is. There's consequences to every choice we make every sin we do and that trying all those sins would lead to years of brokenness and pain no one told me that you know and uh, nobody warned me of you know that you're gonna you want to go live this life but I want to tell you something you're gonna pay a price for it so how many of you know when you walk away from God then he lets you go he says okay go. nobody's talking to you and I fell into such darkness that the next time I would hear from God would be six years later when my life was completely ruined. I know God tried to prevent my ruin and give me hope at an early age. I left school after that place and went to the army and joined the paratroopers in 1980-81. And war was already in my heart and I fitted right into this fighting unit, this elite fighting unit of those days. I don't know about today anymore, but anyway. You know, and... Um, before I was 20 years old, we'd fought in 1981 in battles, Operation Protea, Carnation, Sealing, Daisy. We fought with Kufut, Tracking Ops, and many minor operations as young men before we were 20. You know what I mean? We'd seen a lot of uh, death and dying, and, and we'd done three major cross-border operations um, and been the stormtroopers for each of them. So, you know, I, I mean, I left the army when I just turned 20, actually. And like 2nd of December 20, and then we clawed out. 
So we were really battle-hardened veterans, you know, going home. I was a well-known atheist in the army by now, and I have no idea why, and why I turned against God. I had no idea, you know, I thought, what did God ever do to me, you know, that I hated him. And I was well-known in the unit as an antichrist, you know. And, um, you know, I, I have no idea what God ever did. I often try and think about it. What was the trigger in my life that pushed me in that direction, you know? But I, I, I can't remember. Maybe it was just my life and the way I'd grown up and we blame God for that, you know? But God did try and save me before that. They say there's no atheists in the foxholes. And, you know, I never told people this for years and years and years um, afterwards, you know? Uh, one day we're attacking an enemy base, you know, and it's a paratrooper operation. Uh, a reconnaissance unit has found the base and, and we're going in to take the base. And uh, we're flying company strength in V formations in the choppers towards the base, uh, first light attack. And uh, our pathfinder units have dropped in from 10,000 feet the night before and secured the drop zones. So, you know, we're coming in hard over the trees and uh, you know, I'm starting to think now, maybe I'm actually not going to come back today. That suddenly occurs to me, you know what I mean? What, what happens if I actually die here today? You know? And we're watching out the choppers as the impalers and that are bombing the bush in front. We were still impalers and mirages. In those days, are bombing the bush ahead of us. We can see the, the smoke and the bombs dropping. And we feel the choppers banking like this. And we look at the smokes coming out the bush where we're going to land. And suddenly a very cold chill comes over me and I realize... What happens if I die now? Where am I going? And we grew up with hell. I mean, in our schools, we had assembly every day. You know, the scriptures were read, you know. So there wasn't anybody that didn't know about hell. You know, so I'm thinking, where am I going? You know, if I get shot today, you know, that's, that's it. I'm going into the hell, whatever it is. So I try to make a deal with God, you know. I said, uh, you know, you can't hear what you're saying in the choppers, you know. And I, I said to God, you know, listen, if I make it today, you know, I won't drink so much and I'll try and stop smoking, you know. I'm trying to make a deal with God, but there's no deals between lions and men. It's God's way or the highway, you know. And after that whole operation was finished and we regrouped, you light the cigarettes and then you forget about the deal you try to make with God, you know. So there wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been saved. Had I lost my life in, in, on that day, you know what I mean? I would have gone straight to the pits, you know, and, and that would have been the end of it, you know. So we saw a lot of action in those with major operations, taking the cities of Anjiva and Zangongo and other ops. And these experiences are all detailed by a fellow soldier in a book, 19 with a Bullet by Granger Kof, which came out in 2014, I think it was. You know, that names us by names and our pictures are all in there. He was my fire and movement partner uh, all those years. And um, it shocked our families to the core, you know. And I'm glad it came out because no one ever believed us. You know, we used to tell stories, people didn't believe a word of it. So um, don't, if you read the book, I do not look good in that book. I'm not a, a, I wasn't a Christian at all, you know. So I'm not spoken of well, you know. But anyway... And um, so the last operation we did, Operation Daisy, um, uh, a lot of people were killed in this operation. We were, it's a long story, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but a lot of people, uh, women and children were killed as well. The, the gunships had tra uh, trapped uh, 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 an army, a small army group 
and they had women and children with them and the five gunships were holding them and we came in with the choppers uh, and landed and cleaned out. But there was a lot of wounded women and children there because of the gunships. They don't know what they see movement. They just, you know, and they shoot the bushes, they're hiding in the bushes. So it was utter carnage, you know. And, um, you know, the guy wrote this book, Ranger Korf. I think that was the tipping point for him. And he needed to write that book for his own healing. You know what I mean? He, 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 you know, he never, I think that he didn't, he was quite upset by that uh, battle zone, you know. But um, we came straight out of that operation and went home, you know, flew home. And we flew back to Ondongwa and then from Ondongwa we went back to Bloom and then we went home. And we're like, what are we going to do now? Because we've been fighting in the wars for, you know, for a very long time and now we hope. What are we going to actually do? So we, we didn't know what we were going to do, you know. And we, I tried to get a job. I didn't last days and that. I tried to regroup with, uh, join the mercenaries and they were disbanded because of the Seychelles operations. So I couldn't get back in there again. And then we drifted, you know. And in the last chapter of that book, 19 with a bullet, it details what happened to us all. You know, um, in that, the book's about our Falcon group or patrol, you know, a platoon. And what happened to each one of us, you know. And the soldier of fortune critic said he wept when he read that last chapter because we were so stuffed, you know. I mean, you know, uh, Michael, my friends are crippled today, you know. Granger got lost. Um, uh, actually, boxing saved his life, you know, and he was drifting into all kinds of stuff. And each of us, like, landed up in a bad situation. And I, 23 years of age, I was arrested in 1984 for five armed robberies, one of them a bank robbery in Norwood's Barclays Bank in Johannesburg. And I was sentenced to 30 years imprisonment, 15 years running concurrently with 15. By then I'd estranged everybody. No one was talking to me anymore. I'd, I'd, my face looks like this from motor car accidents, crashing 160 k's into concrete ditches, being cut out of these cars with the drunkards, lords. You know, we had, if nobody wanted me in Cape Town anymore, we were, I just made enemies everywhere, you know. And, um, you know, I was in Hilbra at that stage. And, um, you know, so nobody even knew I was in prison when I was arrested. But, you know, I was, I'd done so much evil in my life by that age that I didn't actually care. You know, I didn't care about my life anymore. I stood chained there to the other guys. And, and we were sentenced to prison, you know, and nobody actually knew I was in prison for two years. You know, my foster family, I was, I was lost to them, you know, they didn't know either. And um, I was alone, you know, I found myself alone going to prison and I didn't really care. You know? I just thought, this is it, this is it, you know. And I was tired of life. I was 23 and I was exhausted. There was nothing more I wanted to do in my life. There wasn't anything that I thought to myself, you know, I really wish I'd done that in my life, or I wish I'd done this in my life, or something, you know. So, you know, I found that I was chained like a dog in that court, cut off, suffering the consequences of my life's choices. I'd fallen into very grievous sins since I came out of the army, and I'm not even going to detail that because that's not what we do here. You know, our testimony is what Christ did for us, not our past lives, you know. But when I say grievous sin, I was in very grievous sin, and I got really lost. And um, and there I was now being going to prison, a very predictable chain of events for such a child. Prison for logasm. 
None of us, many of us have got fathers in there. I didn't know my real father. The father, foster father I had was a nightmare, uh, a real horror of a human being. You know, so prison, you talk to any of the guys, they don't know the fathers. You know, they're all, my mother's my best friend, they'll tell you. You know, don't talk against my mother, you know. You know what I mean? Their mother's everything to them. They've all lost. So, I was sent um, from Pretoria Central, which was the hanging prison in those days. They still used to hang people. And if you had um, uh, a hanging offence, uh, an offence that had a hanging, that you could be hanged for, a capital offence, they called it in those days, then they had one maximum white classification prison in the country, which was Sondawata prison. You know, it, they didn't call it a maximum prison because they didn't want to pay their waters any more than they should. But it was for all maximum classifications were sent to that prison. Nine years up, all, all offences that you could be hanged for, you know, murder, rape, kidnapping, sexual, heavy sexual sins, and all the serial killers were there as well. So it's quite a bunch, you know. And, um, yeah, so that's when I was, I went from Pretoria Central, where we used to hear the guys singing before they got hung in the mornings. In the early hours of the morning, we could, you know, there was a tradition, they got hung early in the morning, so they used to sing through the nights, you know, we'd hear the guys singing through the nights before the, they went to the trap pools, you know. And then I was moved from there to Sun City Prison, it was Dipkloor for a while, and for, um, they decide what prison you're going to, and then I went to Sondervater Prison. Now, Sondervater is a terrifying prison, was in those days, terrifying prison amongst all the prisoners in South Africa. Nobody wanted to go there. You've got back-to-back -back life sentences, the guys there have been there for the entire, most of their lives, you know what I mean, and all killers and, and real hardcore savages, you know. Anyway, so that's where I landed up going. 23, I'm one of the youngest guys in the prison. I mean, can you believe it? 23, you know, I'm, I'm the young, one of the youngest oaks there. And um, yeah, I was put in the bomb, which is the single cells because of the length of my sentence. Um, I was considered a, a risk and uh, kept in solitary confinement, which was actually better than being released into the main prison, just cold, you know, and you don't know anybody. Anyway, um, I was assigned to a workbench since I came out of solitary confinement and there was a Christian guy, one Christian in the prison. The prison looked like Sodom and Gomorrah times two. I mean, it was a thousand men of, uh, Oaks actually wore dresses in there, you know, they wore just allowed it, you know. I mean, it was Sodom and Gomorrah times not, nothing you've ever seen before. You know what I mean? And um, I was put on a workbench with a, the, probably the only Christian that I know of in the prison, a guy called Billy Rotenbach. He's a habitual criminal. He was put in prison for seven years. In, in the old days, you, if you committed a, a crimes a couple of times, you got a blow bike, they called it, sentence. And then you were sentenced to seven years to indeterminate. So they can keep you with the rest of their life if they want to, or they can let you out at some stage after seven years if they think you've rehabilitated. So yeah, that's it. Anyway, Billy spoke to me about cross. Now, I, was an abs I wasn't a good person. I did not deserve to be in prison. I want to tell you, I need, uh, there was no way you could have allowed me to be outside anymore. I was an absolute horror of human being. I had no love, joy, kindness, and I would execute anybody that got slim with me. You know, we were completely gone. And there was no, I, I understand that, that you've got to actually remove some men from society, you know, they, and there's some guys in there that should never come back to society again. You understand what I'm saying? And what I saw inside there. 
They don't rehabilitate, you know. And um, so, anyway, he spoke to me about Christianity, and I just, you know, I just flook and swear and can't on, you know, full of demons. And um, he gave me a book called There's a New World Coming by Lindsay to go read, you know. So I started reading because I was involved in the occult as well. I mean, good Lord, you know, and astral projection. I had a wizard's wife, uh, ex-wife visiting me in prison. I never even knew on the outside. You know what I mean? This chick used to come and give me all these books and all this nonsense, you know. Anyway, so I was interested in spiritual stuff and I read this uh, book, Is a New World Coming? And it's a book on the book of Revelations. It takes the book of Revelations and then breaks it up into what does it mean? Now, I was obviously interested in this, you know, from a spiritual point of view. And I was reading this and I got a little bit shocked, you know, that I found out that Christ is the head of all things, you know. And in the occult, in astral projection, you use rituals of the banishing pentagrams, okay, to protect you in the occult realms. There's two levels in the occult realm. There's worldly, which witches use, hence the sign of the broomstick. The sign of the witch is traveling on broomstick, sign of astral projection on this plane. Out here, they go to houses, whatever. Then you've got the, um, the mental side of it, which is uh, a mental side that you enter into, which is not real, but the forces that you meet are very real. You know what I mean? So, you know, I'm reading the book of Revelations and finding out about Christ, you know what I mean? And slowly but surely, you know, I'm thinking... This guy, I mean, you get that, you see Christ then in Revelations 1. You know what I mean? You know, the sword out of his mouth. and the, You think, wow, bro. You know, this is not Christianity I know. I've never heard of Christianity. You know, Jesus with the halo around his head handing out the fishes. You know, was the Jesus we thought, you know. Now we're seeing the risen Christ. And, you know, I'm starting, I can't put this book down. You know? And in a dark and dangerous bungalow, I was in a very bad bungalow at that stage, you know. I spoke to no one, they thought I was crazy. Also, the length of your sentence determines your rank in prison. So I had a good standing. Armed robbery is like the chief of all the crimes. It's above murder. Because murderers do it once, you know. They haven't got the guts to go rob banks and things like this. So you've got a high ranking, you know. Anyway, so I don't even talk to these. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. You know, I'm stuck in prison now with all these savages. Everything's smoking dacha. Everybody's getting called work, drugs. Everything's available in the prison. You know, it's like a world on its own, you know. But I don't know. I'm like, I don't know why I was doing it. I'm holding back. I'm thinking, is this the life I want to live? But what? There is no other choice for me, man. Anyway, one night I read a text verse that I started reading, Revelations 5. It said, And I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? What had been my boyhood? Think who is worthy. You know, found no one. You know, in this world, I found not one human being that I could follow. You know, not one. I was disappointed with the human race, and and you know, and I. That was my call. Who is worthy to follow? Who can I give my sword and shield to? You know, who? And and it'd been my whole crime my entire life. And now I read it here. Who is worthy to open the seals? And the writer said the angels of God were seen to look on the earth and under the earth. That is, the people that were alive or those in the places of the dead. All the people of the human race were put to the test to find if they were worthy. So the angels must have looked at Confucius 
said he's not worthy. Went and looked at Buddha and said he's not worthy. Went and looked at Muhammad and said he's not worthy. You know what I mean? Looked at Gandhi, found him not worthy. And I knew that. I mean, I'd looked at these things, you know. I'd seen how many men Muhammad had killed. 600. The Jews, you know, and, and himself with a sword. You know, and you wonder, what the heck, you know. And then Gandhi with all these charges of these young girls he was sleeping with. And, you know, everybody was fraught. Buddha was this size and he's telling us about self-control. You understand what I mean, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, man, this is all crazy, man, you know. And it says, no one was found worthy. The angel looked at all the men who had ever lived and found no one worthy. No religious man was found worthy before God. Revelations 5.3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look at it. And I knew it was the truth. I, I, absolutely, I just knew in my heart that's the truth. You know, that's what I'd found. And when it really hit me in the heart, you know, and I knew humans are not worthy and I knew I was not worthy. I mean, the real scumbag, you know. I knew in my heart that no so-called holy man that I'd seen in my entire life was holy. We knew them, uh, priests and that, and they were doing things on the side and we just thought, ah, oh, you know. You know what I mean? You know, just we'd given up on these guys, you know. I'd just seen too much evil in my life, you know, too much betrayal, violence, growing up in very violent homes. I'd seen the reality of the human race and found it wanting. Everybody had let me down and I had then in turn let everybody down. You know what I mean? I'd also just, if I look back on my life, I just destroyed lives. And then in Revelations 5, 4, it's, it says, the apostle said, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll and to look at it. And you know, I felt that cry of the human race. And it says, so the apostle broke down at this point and wept that his heart was breaking. He was weeping for the brokenness of man, for our terrible wickedness, for our shame, for our brutality, for our violence against one another, and for our utter and complete wickedness. You know, and that touched my heart absolutely, because I knew it. I knew that's true. You know, and I put my head into my pillow there, because you can't talk in that place. With 30 men double by bunks. You know, and I gave my heart to the Lord. You know, I said, I've got nothing to give you, you know what I mean? But I know you are worthy. I didn't even know about repentance and all this stuff. I didn't even know it existed. I just believed in Christ. I believed who he was, who he said he was. And I said that to him. I said, I believe you are who you say you are, you know? And you can have my life. There's nothing, I've got nothing to offer you. But uh, nothing. No money. No, no good things. There's no good thing in me. And I've got no abilities to give you, you know? But I surrendered my life to him. I put it in his hands. And I didn't think of how I was going to be a Christian because if somebody had told me that, I think we put a lot of stumbling blocks in the way of people, you know. We, we want you first to repent, then do this, then do this. And we didn't even know what the word repent means. I didn't know. If you told me that, I wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Because actually, quite frankly, wasn't sorry about my life. All the sins that I committed. But I believed in Christ. I believed he was who he said he was. And I gave my life to him. And it was a very emotional moment for me all these years, you know, alone there on my bed, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I was quite broken about it, you know. And it was quite a powerful giving of my life to Christ. 
And in Revelations 5, 5 says, But one of the elders said to me, Don't weep, all the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I thought, I found somebody that's worthy. I will serve this king. You know what I mean? And I didn't even know what, what the next morning get up and how to act like a Christian. I even know how that was. In, I didn't even th think about that or even come into my mind. So I knew and I bowed my knee to him and uh, accepted in my, my, in, my, in my brokenness, I gave my life to Christ. I don't think I knew how to get saved. To get saved, I just asked him. And there in hell, Christ found me. You know, Psalm 139 verse 8 says, If I send into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. There couldn't have been a worse place in any prison in the country than that, that prison. The violence, the sexual sin was so bad. You know, in that prison, you know, it was a, a very violent and dangerous place. You know? So even if you're in the darkest place, Christ can find you. I didn't understand love, so Christ never came to me with that. I would have rejected it. Love I couldn't do. I distrusted love. Utterly. You know? Um, you know, in that young girl that I had found at school um, when I was 17, you know, she left me when I was fighting in the bush. <laughs> so that didn't help my image of women. You understand what I'm saying, you know? You know, they, we were hunting a group of terrorists or the mercenary units deep in Angola and we were under scrutiny by the enemy forces. And uh, it was a dark, just before evening, the choppers brought in some supplies and, and our letters. We'd been in for about a month, you know, and they brought them in and there was my dear John Letter which I'm greatly laughed at in the book of 19 with a bullet, by the way. They make great fun of me about that, you know, I mean, the, the, my girlfriend broke up with me when I'm in the bush hunting terrorists, you know. Anyway, so I didn't ever love a girl after that again. I never trusted another person, actually, you know, uh, in my life again after that. So God came to me with truth, you know, the truth. I believed who he said he was. That's all I could do. You know, and um, I gave my life unconditionally to him. I've been a Christian now for 38 years since. I've never turned to the left or right. You know, I got saved. I really, you know, I didn't feel a great change. The next morning when I got up, I felt different. You know, I felt a little bit different. I still wanted to headbutt the guy when we were going to go wash all our stuff and everybody's bumping everybody. But I didn't do that. And I went to Bali at the workshop and I said to him, I'm going to tell you something now and you don't tell anybody. Okay, he says, I said, I gave my life to Christ last night. So he went and told everybody. It was the best thing because everybody started coming to me and saying, listen, what do we do? We hear? And I had to, it was so hard for me to say to, in a prison to show any form of weakness is dangerous. You know, and to say, you know, my ears went red, my face went red and I, Say, so, yes, I did, you know, and it was very hard, you know, for me to confess that I'd given my life to Christ, you know, inside a, a place like that, you know. And um, so that's how I became a Christian. And, and you know, my whole life, I, dream, I either didn't dream if I slept or I dreamt of evil, war, darkness was always in my life. I never woke up in peace. I never had, it, most nights I dreamed nothing. But if I dreamt it was dark, you know what I mean? And 
Um, that was the first night I can remember in my life I slept through. And I woke up and I thought, wow, you know, what did I do last night? You know? But I felt something, a peace. And, you know, I haven't told many people this, and, you know, we, I was in such an abusive situation growing up that in my mind as a child, I before I'd go to sleep, I had this, I'd imagined a car. That sounds stupid, but this was a little boy, you know, that I could get into that I was completely safe in it, you know. And, um, you know, nothing could harm me in it. It could fly, it could whatever. And that was my go-to place all my life as a child and growing up. You know, and you know, the next night when I was so used to going there, I couldn't. It was taken from me like that. Completely. And the Lord said, not to, didn't speak to me. I just knew he's saying to me, I'm your shelter. You know, and has been ever since in my life. Anyway, that's just a little, told the psychologist that they're going to lock me up. You know? Anyway, so I slept. And I think at the, you know, the reformers are right in saying we don't find Christ, he finds us, because he found me. I was completely lost, you know. I didn't I wasn't looking for him. You know, and I remember finding a magazine in the solitary confinement about God, you know, and I actually forgot there was a God. I'd forgotten that God actually exists. I remember looking at that magazine and thought, and then I had memories back of God. God exists. It was like a weirdest thing, you know. And he drew me to. And he found me, you know, at my when I was at my worst. And for those of you today, it's the Lord that draws you, you know, always drawing us and trying to find us. Romans 5 verse 8, but God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, and I, most people, not all people, most people get saved in their darkest hour when there's nothing left. You're at rock bottom. And now you look, and I don't think I would have looked up if I hadn't gone to prison. You know what I mean? It's too arrogant, too full of pride. You know what I mean? And, and I had to go there. So, while we were his enemies, he already thought of us and loved us. The Bible says, likewise I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One person coming to Christ is joy in heaven. So having learned a lot of things now, later in my life, and 38 years later, and been in the ministry, um, as long as I can remember, always in some form or another, um, I think I know what happened that night at Sonavata Prison. The Lord arrived at the gates of that hell zone. There are evil men there that should never be released. I'm telling you, you know, and many of them have had the death penalty and have it commuted. You know, they chopped a guy up just recently before and tried to flush him down the toilet during the night because we locked up the whole night. They couldn't get his head and parts down when they were caught the next morning. I mean, that's the prison. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think the Lord arrived at that gate and every demon saying, what do you want here in our domain? And where I get that from is John Bunyan wrote a book, Pilgrim's Progress, but he also wrote another book that people don't know about called Heaven, Visions of Heaven and Hell. And he said the Lord took him down to hell to show him what hell looked like. You know? And as they entered the gates, the demons ran in all directions and they went and fetched Lucifer, who came and said, what does the thunderer want in my domain? Call Jesus the thunderer. Go look it up in the Bible. So funny. He said, what does the thunderer want in my domain? And that would have been that type of situation. You know, the Lord arriving in hell. There's one Christian in the prison, places 
so evil beyond human understanding. And uh, I can say that, see the Lord just walking through the gates to my room, as he did for many of you in your situations. You know, and I think the Lord held me that night, you know, and I got saved. Romans 8.38 says, For I am persuaded neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can stop you being saved. You know, David said, I make my bed in hell. Jonah was in a fish in the bottom of the sea. He cried out, God heard him, you know, and, and the Lord came to my bungalow for that appointment. And I think the way I slept, he held me in his arms that night, you know, because I slept in peace, like I hadn't in my, that I could ever remember in my entire life. You know, and I felt secure. And he'll also do the same for you. What's my time like? Eh? Am I on time? What am, I, am I over time now? You know, I know I'm wondering with my, with my notes. Okay, so how long have I got? Angela, somebody? Okay. The prison that I was in was brutal. Uh, as I said, there were only um, hanging offenders or capital offenders in those days in the prison. There was no kindness, peace and joy in that prison at all. It's just hard, like it's iron hard, you know. Any form of kindness was looked at as weakness. Uh, the sexual sin in the prison was massive. It's probably the most wicked place I'd ever seen. But remember, I'd been two years in the Parisian Battalion. Uh, I mean, and I'd seen terrible sights. And I was shocked by this person. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, what the heck, bro? Check at these oaks, you know? And, uh, you know, violence rules the prison. It's always violence. You, all the years that I said, there's just violence all the time, a cycle of violence going on all the time. So, you know, being now being a Christian, you know, um, I had to now try and walk this road, you know? And... Um, it took a while for me to read my Bible and it took a while for me to learn to repent. You know, I didn't even know that that was part of a Christian walk. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So I confessed with my mouth the Lord Jesus. You know, and then the angels and demons can hear we've changed sides and we belong to Christ. Verse 10, for the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I didn't have an easy walk as a Christian, you know. I, I struggled in the Christianity, you know. I wasn't kind, nice, and, ha and, and had anything good in me that I thought was good at all. And there were only two of us in that prison, you know, amongst a thousand men. There are lots of cults. The prisons are full of cults. There's the old apostle called giants. Leaders are all homosexuals, you know what I mean? Then there's the Brandonite cults, and then there's Jehovah's Witnesses, then there's Muslim cults. You know what I mean? Like hardcore, you know. But they're all sinning and carning on and smoking weed and taking drugs and whatever. You know what I mean? They, their religion has not affected their lifestyles. You know? So there were many times I wanted to give up, you know, in my Christian walk. But God always helped me, you know. Just stop me and help me. I tried witnessing, it wasn't very successful, as I try and talk to somebody and then it, I lose the argument and get into a fight. If you can't win the argument, you win the fights. Then we put our Bibles down, then we donate each other, you know what I mean? One of the prison gang leaders, number two, Lucky Constantinus, 18 years, murder and rape. 
pulled me out of the queue one day. He said to me, hey, bro, you're supposed to be a Christian. You build a fence one day and then you break it down the next. He's telling me that I ought to be a Christian. He says, you're not supposed to behave like that, he says to me. You know, but I didn't know how to help myself. I, I was damaged, you know, and I didn't know how to fix it. So, you know, I was uh, reading my Bible now, starting to learn it about my script, the scriptures. I was reading a lot of Christian books. You can buy any book in Christian in the prison for carton of cigarettes, Matthew, any commentaries, anything, because everybody's sending the people books, you know, and then we get them. You know, and I, I wasn't doing great, but I was growing. You know? I was reading the Bible. I was trying. Uh, I, I wasn't always a good Christian, but I was trying. One day I read about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't know what your theology is, you know, as, or whatever, what your personal theology is, but I didn't know about that. And um, where God said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that word power is dunamis, Greek word for dynamite power. So the apostles had been healing the sick, praying for the dead, Winning souls, to, you know, doing all kinds of things. And Jesus still said to them, you need one more thing. You know? So they must have thought, what is he talking about? We can pray for the sick. We could do all these things. And, uh, you know, so I started to trust God for it. You know? And I said, Lord, I have not got this in my life. I don't know how to witness to people, and I'm winning no one to Christ. I'm actually pushing people away. They see me coming. I'm a fanatic. There's someone running away from me. You know what I mean? You know, so I wasn't getting anywhere. So one day I trusted God in the shower. I said, I'm going to, I'm, I'm trusting you that you're going to baptize me in this Holy Spirit by faith now, because you promised it. You know, and I don't know about tongues and that. We didn't have anybody to teach us anything. I just read in the Bible and I spoke by faith in that, in that uh, shower. Nothing. I didn't feel any different, but I said, I'm taking the baptism of the Holy Spirit now and I'm going to act like I got it. So I walked out. I didn't feel any difference. I started carrying on talking to you guys, still getting nowhere. But about three days later, I was in, a, in the workshops. And I was with these five skabangas from Mayfair. And um, we, I was talking to them about God and that, you know. And suddenly I felt, what is going on with me? I felt out of my belly flowing rivers of living water. While I'm talking, I feel like a river is running on my belly. You know, and I feel, wow, what am I saying here? I'm saying stuff I don't even know what I'm actually saying to these guys and speaking with power and they were utterly stunned. They just stood there looking at me like this, you know. And the bell rang for us to go to be searched and that, you know. And I left them and I looked back and they were still standing there in the same place. <laughs> and what actually just hit us now? And I'm thinking, what hit me? What was that? But then we started doing guys to Christ, you know. And the uh, first guy we won was a Frenchman who was in for murder of a prostitute in Durban, who didn't even believe in God. You know, France is so ungodly, his father told him it was a myth. He went to show in churches that are dead now and gone, you know, and, you know, he got saved, you know, and it was like a big thing, you know, you know, and then slowly but surely we started winning key figures in the prison, you know, and started turning that whole thing around in that prison. We, we had an, a church in the prison, you know what I mean? We started to grow strong. You know, and um, it uh, we became very powerful at one stage. Where every bungalow was homosexual at our height of strength, we had about only three bungalows in the whole prison. The rest we turned not to Christ, but we'd driven that devil right out of there. You know what I mean? And our, our, our Christian Christians were strong and powerful in that in that place. 
There's a whole story to that too. That'll take me all night to tell you. It was dangerous in prison. You know, um, uh, uh, your life hangs by a thread sometimes, you know, and I know what it's like to fear for your life at night. They used to lock the prisons at night, your bungalows at night, and take the master key out the prison. So from four o'clock in the afternoon to five o'clock the next morning, no one can get come and help you. It's built in a wagon wheel with a watchtower in the middle. So the watchtower, I can look down into all the bungalows with a little little field in each cave. You know, that's what sort of... There's only two entrances on this side, one's that side. Outside, then there's uh, fences, dogs in, and watchtowers with uh, riflemen. You can't get... Nobody gets out of the prison. Because even if you break through the main prison, you've got to get to the uh, the gates, you know what I mean, or to the fences, and they're so high, and the dogs are everywhere. And, you know, you, no one ever escapes, you know. Um, so... You know, it was a, uh, you know, it was a difficult place. I forget in what context I was telling you that story, but you know, it was a very, um, it was built for maximum prisoners, and um, it was very dangerous in that prison. You know, um, locked up at night. So I displeased the powers that be one night, and the, and the head oak is in my bungalow or the main gang at that time, and they were going to kill me. And um, Lucky Constantinus, the same guy, he was the number two in this game. He pulled me aside. He said, listen, my brother, you are going to get it. They're going to get it tonight. You finished. And he said, there's nothing I can do for you. You know what I mean? So he said, but I'll pray with you. He actually came to Christ later on, you know. And uh, he prayed. We prayed about it. And I thought, well, I'm dead, you know. And we went back that afternoon into the back from the workshops. And we were going to get locked up. And they were all looking at me, you know. Because the story was, they stole a, a set of boots, soccer boots, from one of my friends. And I told my friend, this oak stole the soccer boots. And then the warders, he went and told the warders, and they searched this oak's place. And he knew it was, he just looked at me. You must have told them, you know. And that's like, you know, pumping, you know. But I mean, he's my friend. Anyway, so I come out of that, uh, that uh, you know, with Lucky, you know, we're walking out and they're waiting for me there. So I thought, let me take, let me let them take me down in the open here, so at least they can get to hospital. You know what I mean? Before I get locked up in the bungalow. So I walked up to them and I, I talked to the main guy and I said, listen, man, I just want to talk to you about that story about the boots. And he just went blank and he didn't know what I was talking about. I said, what boots? And then I spoke to this other Donald Ryan. I said, he didn't know what I was talking about. Then I spoke to the other guy and Lucky's just looking at me like, what the hell's going on? I spoke to him. He said, he couldn't, he didn't know what I was talking about. None of them could remember the story at all. It was gone. It was just taken out of their heads like a straightaway. And that night, I thought I was going to get it. It just went away. They forgot about it. It was gone. So, I mean, I saw God deliver us so many times, you know. Um, you're sleeping. You've got an urn in your bungalow. They throw it over your face if you're sleeping at night. You know what I mean? Boiling water. And all the skin comes over your face. You know what I mean? They've got many ways of dealing with uh, you in that prison, you know. And no one can pull you out that bungalow. It takes hours to get you out. You know, if they even answer the phones, the warders, you know, or you get stabbed or whatever the situation is, you know. So there are many nights and days that we, I thought that I was going to get it and didn't, you know, God had other plans. Um, we had a lot of problems with demons in the prison, obviously, because guys are full of hookers inside there. Absolutely psychotic madmen, you know. You like walk past some of them, you know, and that spirit in them activates immediately. And then they, they see a woman, and their eyes glow, and they come up, and then they stand and they swear God like this, 
just while you're walking past, you know, that thing in the manifests, you know. <laughs> so hectic, you know. So, I mean, we had a lot of demonic problems which we learned to overcome in prison and to war against and, um, you know, and overcome those things. Anyway, I have to get somewhere down to an end here. And as the years dragged by, I'd done just almost seven years. as a long time, you know, and I'd been sober in seven years, you know. And the food was disgusting, I mean, beyond anything you can imagine, you know. It was uh, weevils with worms in it in the morning, um, you know, and that much milk. And you get a sugar ration about that size. And then lunch is cooked spinach with insects in it and... Uh, you can part the spinach and there's the insect lying there cooked in it because they don't bother to clean it. Then we get offal, which is crushed pig's head, cooked like that and thrown on your plates. You know, it's disgusting stuff, you know what I mean? It's like hard to... So years of that, you know, and um, soyas, we used to call them karate soyas because they attack you in the mouth. They're so disgusting, you know, when you're eating us yesterday. Then we had stunk soyas which smell like bad feet. So you have to hold your nose while you eat it because it smells like someone's unwashed socks. You know what I mean? It's just absolutely terrible. All the riots in prison start from the food. You know? All the riots. You come back from the workshops and the oaks say, Manier, and throw it in the water's face and then you see plates flying, you know. And then the sirens are going, the place getting locked down, the army's coming. Crazy, you know, coming in, uh, you know, um, uh, with shields and forming tortoise. <laughs> into the prison, I tell you, can't make, can't make this stuff up, you know. Always a food, I just couldn't take it anymore, you know. You know, so, you know, I've been like six years, nine months in this place, you know, and the years are pushing hard. And, um, you know, the prison was changing as well, you know. They, um, things were starting to change in that prison. And... Um, I was pushing hard time. I wasn't writing home anymore because I'd been reconnected to my family after two years. You know, they knew where I was. They were writing to me. People were writing to me. But I was just surviving now, you know, pushing through. There'd been a short stretch where I'd been removed from Sondervata after I was declassified from maximum to medium down to Palsmore. Palsmore was a Mickey Mouse prison. You know, it's a, it's a baby prison in prison language, you know. And uh, I was declassified, and then they sent us all the Sondervata guys back again to Sondervata because they were causing too much trouble here at Sondervata. I mean, at Palsmore. So I landed up back in Sondervata again, and when I got back, there was no church. The church had been annihilated. It was gone. Um, you know, I had no friends. My Christian friends had turned to me. They were all sinning grievously, you know, and so it was really bad. And um, I was put in an Avia beer bungalow, you know what I mean? You know, a real bunch of thugs. And um, anyway, so I was pushing time hard and uh, the welfare worker in the prison who knew me all the years, a lady, um, phoned my sister Melanie and she said to her in Cape Town, yeah, she said, Yo, she was a Christian. She was uh, at an Anglican church in Cape Town and Table Hill. And she said to her, listen, your, son, your brother's in trouble. She thinks she's in trouble. You know? I hadn't fallen into the world. I just wasn't talking to anybody. I was just getting through my... I was still reading my Bible, still uh, in my way serving the Lord as I could under those circumstances. And uh, she said, I think you need to pray for your brother. So she went on a fast for three days. Never fasted in her life before. You know? She fasted for me, you know, that God would do something for me. And um, on the third day, she walked into a prayer group at the Anglican place. And I mean, they're not a 
church that believes in gifts and things like this. And the 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 woman in in the uh, who's running the prayer group said, "Listen to me. I feel God's given a message for your brother." And she didn't even know what Melanie was doing, you know. And she said, "This is the scripture." And she said. It's in Isaiah 45 verse 1. This is the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, his right hand of holding to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. The prison sign in those was two leaves. You know? Open before him the two-leaved gates. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I'll break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I'll give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, which call you by name, and the God of Israel. That's the scripture she got. She was like so shocked. You know, because the prison is the two leave gates. You know, there was no ways I was getting out. I had a capital offense. I missed amnesty after amnesty. No capital offenders got amnesties in those days. You know what I mean? And um, I still had many more years. They could have kept me for 15 of the, you know, of the 15 concurrent that I had. So the wealthy worker contacted me through the uh, um, intercom system called me to the office in the camp and told me the story you know and i was like wow that's weird you know and she said anthony i believe the lord's going to release you and i said well that's great you know what i mean i couldn't even think of how's that going to happen i can't be paroled and i am not on parole time and um, there's no ways that um, we get amnesty so i was very strict on the word of god as i read the bible five to ten chapters a day i was very very diligent and and, and, and radical, you know, like a monk in the prison, you know. Anyway, um, so I thought the, every word must be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So I said to God, you must confirm that I can't even deal with that right now. I can't even put my hope in that now, you know what I mean? It's like, what? How's that going to happen? Anyway, so I left that, and a couple of days later, I get a call to the intercom system, and... I go up there and this woman says, there's a message coming for you from a Pretoria prayer group. They said, we have a message for Anthony inside Solovata prison. They said to this woman, do you know Anthony? She says, of course I know. She says, and this is the message God has given us in Afrikaans. It's Zechariah 9-11. It was an Afrikaans prayer group. And they said, it says, Exalik Gefangenes Lost Park 80 Pits on the water. So that says it. It says in English, I'll release the prisoners out of the pit where there's no water. And then I knew, I knew that is impossible. That is a second one. But now, how's that going to happen? So I told the guy, I said, I'm going out. I'm going to be released soon. They said, you're in a box. They're looking at me there in the bungalow. <laughs> you're going in a box. That took nonsense, you know. And it must have been about a week later. We're lying on our beds. TVs are now in the bungalows. We didn't have TVs in the early years. The, the news comes on and the prison bars pop up. And they announce an amnesty. Nobody knows about this amnesty. No, usually amnesties are, are organized six months before that time so the prison can get it into their system and work it through. Pops up on the news. It says uh, all prisoners finish the third of their time may be released. You know, and no exclusions. We're like looking at each other. What are they talking about? First offenders. If, you, if you're a first offender and you've done a third of your time, you may be released immediately. And we're like, no, it can't be, man. So we all are checking each other, what's going on, you know, and Oaks is saying, hey, I'm in that time, I'm in that time. I finished a third of, of, of my time, you know, and uh, so we don't know what's going on, this chaos. We ask the warders and explain what's going on, they say, listen, no one's going nowhere. We don't know where this comes from, we have not been informed, no one's going nowhere, go back to work, go back to your bungalows. So... 
by that afternoon, the faxes came through and then they started releasing guys. So not me. I'm not getting released. But other oaks are going. And I know they've done a third. I'm in that. And they're not releasing me. They're not releasing me. Next day, no one's releasing me. So I get hold of this woman and I say to her, listen, you please go check in the front there what's going on. So she went there and she said, they've thrown your file away. They said, you don't get. And, I, and she made them pull them out and I got. So they called me in. They said to me, um, that was like on the Thursday morning, they said to me, uh, we're going to release you. They've got somewhere to go. And I didn't know, all my sister was the only one I was talking to. So the welfare worker phoned her and she had stayed late at work, you know, and, and that uh, Thursday afternoon, you know, and she was late at work and the phone call came through from the prison and she left immediately with her husband, drove all night up and they picked me up on the Friday and I was released unconditionally from that prison. Unconditionally. I didn't have to report to any... Uh, uh, the newspapers freaked out. There was... Uh, the headlines were... Uh, um, uh, angels, prisoners do not become angels, murderers have been, I walked out with 11 murderers at the same time, you know what I mean, they all just went home, you know. So there was a big outcry and there's never been another amnesty like it. Came from nowhere, happened once, never again. There was such a public outcry about it, you know. But I believe God listened to that, my uh, sister's heart and said, let my people go and that was the end of it. You know, and um, I got out. So, you know, that was a, a real um, a miracle in my life. So, I've been serving the Lord, I'll say, for 38 years here now. Always in some kind of ministry. In prison, I was uh, running the, the uh, church in prison, which is something to behold, if, if you can imagine how a church in prison goes. You know, and... Uh, and I do it because I love Christ. I'm still in the kingdom of God. I'm still grateful for Christ for rescuing me. I will never forget the years in prison where God walked with me, you know. And if ever I feel down or I feel, um, you know, worldly or whatever the situation, I, I remember that. And I'm very grateful to Christ. I, I know I learned about God in prison. I used to pray, get up an hour earlier before the guys you know, at four o'clock in the morning and spend a half an hour bowing and half an hour with the Lord himself. You know, I'd walked with God, you know, and I saw miracles beyond human understanding in the years inside, you know. I saw many men, we led many men to Christ, you know. And, you know, he walked with me through those years, you know, and I, I will never forget that. What, nothing I can do in my life is too hard for the Lord. You know, in my life. That's how I see it. You know what I mean? You know, I'll never forget the kindness of God. I was protected through those years against demonic forces, against evil men beyond human understanding. You know what I mean? And of all kinds of things that ever could have happened and released supernaturally. You know, when it was his time. God didn't release me when I got saved. And it was right. I wasn't ready to come back to the world. The churches would have thrown me out on the ear. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I understand that. And I learned about God. And then I got to a place with Christ in prison that I was satisfied with Christ. I was at peace being in prison. I thought I'm going to be there for the rest of my life. I got 15 years and up was life. You know what I mean? So I'd made peace with it. And I was okay to be there. I didn't want to be anywhere else. And I never prayed to be released. You know what I mean? I never asked God to be released because I knew it wasn't his will at that stage. And I knew I had to get on with the work inside there, do the work inside there, and I, and I did that. 
you know, we worked day and night in the ministry and sport, trained weights, they carried on, you know what I mean? And uh, I was at peace. And I think that's what we've got to learn to do, you know, and God's deliverance came when he felt it was right, you know, on his time. And nothing could stop it when it comes, nothing at all. No government on earth, you know what I mean, could stop it when it was time to go. And I'm still a soldier for Christ, you know, and, and people say, you know, I run a small church. I'm still in very many different fields of ministry. I'm a padre for the Parachute Battalion Veterans Organization in Cape Town, you know, and uh, I managed to lead two of them recently to Christ before they died. You know, hectic oaks, you know, lieutenants and um, hectic soldiers, you know, and their whole families to Christ. You know, that's an honor. And then being part of their funerals. So, you know, I, I've learned to love God. You know, I, I learned the love inside. I didn't know how to love. I didn't, I couldn't talk for it about two years, the word love. I should threaten the prayer group leader that if he asked me to pray, I'd, I'd break his nose because I didn't, I couldn't pray publicly. You know what I mean? Um, the love was a very difficult thing for me. You know, it took me years to even understand it. And, you obviously associate love with like male on male, and I couldn't, I couldn't relate to that. You know, people say, you know, you love God. I, I respect God. I follow God. I go to the ends of the earth, but love, I wasn't prepared to say that. You know, and it, it took many years and knowing Christ in prayer on my own that I learned to say to the word love, and I understood that love is not a weakness; it's a doing word. You know what I mean? And we show our love by what we do. You know, and it's a powerful word. We can love our enemies. We can destroy our enemies at the same time. But we choose to be kind to them because we could destroy them if we want to. But the same spirit resides in us, resides in Christ. And when he was on earth. You know, so I learned that. You know? And it's taken years of, of learning that. And... Um, you know, I want to encourage you, you know, I'm a soldier, I'm sold out to Christ. You know, I'm not corruptible. You can't corrupt me or buy me from the kingdom of God. I don't care about that kind of stuff. You know, I, the Lord helped me in a day in my life where I faced unspeakable enemies. You know, and I've never forgotten it. I had, could have had my face cut to ribbons with uh, soap that they put the razor blades in, you know what I mean? I could have been stabbed to death, I don't know how many times. You know what I mean? Uh, there was this one gangster in the prison. I'll tell you the story because you, you see the fear of God. You know? This character was in the, uh, he was 15 years in the psychopath section. Then he was released and he killed more people, came back for the rest of his life. And he was second in charge of the gang of that time because gangs are always being transferred and beaten up and then a new gang comes in. And he hated me, you know, because I was a Christian. That spirit in him was so evil. And for years I put up, I didn't say anything, you know, I just put up with his nonsense. And he'd never say anything to my face. He'd always like leave notes on my on my desk and my notes him, you know what I mean? And, and things like that. And anyway, one day we got into a fight. Because sometimes, even though you're a Christian, you do get into fights in prison. I'm sorry, that's the way it is. You, know, you just can't, evil beasts, evil men, but you've got to actually put them down sometimes anyway. But um, I got into a fight with this guy on the soccer field, and I looked far worse than he did. My nose was sitting here in my eye. He's a very good boxer, you know. And, uh, you know, and 
this is fine. We finished the fight. I went down to the hospital. They don't do much. They just push it straight. They just say, oh, your nose is broken. Just come here a second. They just push it straight. Okay, you can go now. You know, but it actually worked. You know, it's probably the right thing to do. You know? Anyway, um, so a couple of days later, the Lord strikes this guy. He loses complete use of the side of his body, completely. And he's, he's not that old, you know. The whole prison knew. The whole prison knew. They came running to me saying, Did you, do you know what happened to Donald Ryan? Do you know what happened to him? Do you know what happened to him? You know, he lost the complete use of the side of his body for the rest of his life. When I saw him, he's talking like this. can't move his eyes. And his, his whole body is completely paralyzed. And the whole prison knew, don't touch the Lord's anointing. Because we were preaching in the prison, winning oaths to Christ, serving God <coughs> under fire. You know what I mean? I'm just saying, you know, those kind of things we saw in prison. You know, no one ever tuned me blind again in the prison. After that, it, it went like a shockwave through the prison. You know, and uh, we are God's soldiers and we, we serve Christ. And you even you yourself, you're a Christian. If, you, if your enemies touch you, they touch Christ. And somebody said, you need to pray for forgiveness for our enemies, lest God judges them. It's like an oak stole a car, you know, outside our house a couple of years back. And I went, they caught him, and I went to court once, twice, and they said, don't come back again, he's dead. I said, what did he die? And they said, he fell over. Dead. Don't bother. You know, did I pray for forgiveness? I don't think I did. Jesus did that on the cross. He said, Lord, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing knowing the judgment that would come against them for what they do to him. You know? Anyway, so I want to encourage you today. Forsake the world. Give your life, dreams to Jesus. Let him lead you into adventures you can only dream about. I mean, I'm an ex-con. I've been across the entire Eastern world. and preached in India, Sri Lanka. What other hell have I been? Philippines. You know what I mean? Oman. We are friends that we led to Christ ran an underground church in Oman that I used to go and help with. You know what I mean? Then they used to take us to the east to all these countries. You know, you'll be surprised what God will do with your life. You know, it never cost me a cent. Never paid for any of those trips. You know, we ministered in hell. Right? I'm telling you into these places. So, you know, it's been an incredible adventure to know God. I've been a soldier for Christ. We're not given armor to sit at home with and whistle Dixie. We are warriors, you know, and we are God's warriors. And we have shields and armor and we drive devils on the battleground. Or out of people if necessary. You know what I mean? You know, we are state of the art soldiers for Christ. That's what we should be. The Christians aren't. Our breastplates are lying in our rooms. I heard a story by um, uh, a Pilot, and I've told some of you that are in my church here that know that, you know, but it was, I heard it on the radio one day and it was so great. This top gun pilot was saying, you know, he was in a, a base up in America, it's a Christian guy, and he said that um, a guy got lost in a Cessna plane, you know, while he was on duty up in the mountains in the mist. He couldn't find the way back. So they said to him, can you just take your F 14 or whatever it was in those days and go find them and bring them home? So he said he jumped into this plane, took off and flew through the mist, put on his radar, found him in two seconds, pulled up next to him, waved him, radiated, said, listen, I put on my back lights, I'm going to take you in, I'll show you where the airport is, just follow me, when I go down, come down with me. And he landed the guy safely, 
And uh, the guy came out and hugged him. He was crying. He was so terrified, you know, that this guy had saved his life. And this Top Gun pilot said, uh, we should be the state of the art plane that God can, with all the weapons of God and the ability to go into any situation and win the lost. You know, that we should be the state of the art fighters. Can God deploy you into the most difficult situation? In a, in a, Christians say to me, I'm in a, in, a, in a place full of Muslims. I'll say, great. That's exactly where we want to be. You know, we're going to win these oaks to Christ. We're going to turn this place upside down. Because that's what we do. We are soldiers. We are modern day knights of Christ. And we need these things, to, these guys to rise up. We need the young people to rise up for this. Un, unbreakable, not afraid of anything. And we go wherever the Lord deploys it. You know, so we we can be deployed. We go into we, we, we find blocks in table view, we're gonna go witness it. And in Parklands and the worst we say where's the worst block we can go to? We ask the people see, where's the worst drug out That one. That's the one we go to. Then we go open, we we get inside the building, then we say to the people there, where's the worst unit here? Which is the worst drug added unit here? Then they point it out to us, that's the first place we go. You know, and I'm telling you, you can't believe how we turn those blocks around. We used to, in the, before COVID, we used to turn those blocks around. You know, from being uh, blocks of absolute sin, we'd have three or four cell groups operating in that block after a while. The, all the copper leave. All the drug addicts leave. And that's what we should be. We should, God should be able to deploy us in any way. And, you know, we should be able to walk into those homes, and we do. And we stick our swords in those demons' face and we say, back off here. We, we are, this is Christ's place now. And you get out. We rescue the lost, the broken, those bound in witchcraft. There's no place we're frightened of. We're God's army. You know, what has happened to the church? You know what I mean? We, we're cowering like the world and in fear. You know, it's absolutely terrible. So I wasted my life until I was uh, gave my life to Christ at 25 and after being in prison from 23. I spent most, almost the rest of my 20s in prison. I came out when I was like 31. How different would my life have been had I listened to God in the trick? I wonder sometimes. You know, because I've struggled because I've, no one's going to employ me. Even now they don't employ Wait, no corporation will employ me. They asked me, what about those years? I promise you I tried and I get, I've been serving God in all kinds of, and then it's just those missing years. And every time I come there, they say, what happened in these years? And there's no way around it. And then they say, then I don't come back to you know? But it doesn't matter, you know, I'm at peace, married. Married to a woman that in prison I asked the Lord, I read somewhere, someone asked the Lord, who would their wife be? And they had a dream. So I did that. I thought, if I ever get out of prison, Lord, who would my wife be? And this woman that I knew, Christine's face came to my mind and I thought, no, man, she's married, man. Stupid dream, you know. That's a crazy dream, I thought, you know. And I didn't ever go follow up in a one day in a letter home. I said, whatever happened to Christine, you know? Oh, no, she's divorced. Her husband left her. He's in England. I thought, no, that is just weird. Eh? Who am I married to for 31 years now? Christine. You know, 31 years. You know, so, I mean, that is something, you know. Anyway, serve the Lord. You know, you don't know what God's got in your life. 
and where you're going to. So I want to encourage people, you know, to lay your lives down for Christ. What it, you can't be, the part-time Christians can't de defeat full-time devils. Go <laughs> to one foot in the world and one in the kingdom. They will take you to London town. You know what I mean? You've got to be sold out. You've got to be that hardcore Christian, you know? And, uh, you know, the, the demons just fear us when we walk in the room. Not laugh at you like they do at most Christians. Snicker at you when you come in the room because you have no value and have no ability to do anything. They must run when we come in the room. You know, God's army's here. Ambassadors of the Lord are here now. We carry God's. His armies are behind us. His resources are behind hand. We have his name. We will smash you out of here. That's what we'll do. And they know it. They get uncomfortable. And so they should. I don't get invited to my family's parties anymore. You know, my uh, foster family, you know, they were like really... They just invite us to these parties. My wife and I, we turn the whole party upside down. Nobody's drinking. No, they're all talking to us. We're talking to them about Christ. You know? And all the other tables are watching us. When are we going to go home? And then we like leave after a while and we, yeah, just went to crazy drunkenness afterwards, you know? But we should make a difference, isn't it? That's what we're here for. All right, so I just want to encourage you. I'm going to jump over a lot of things. I've spoken about a lot of things. And um, I just want to encourage you to be radical for Christ. Be a soldier. Put on the armor of God. You know, armor's not for doing nothing. It's for engaging the enemy. You're given a defensive weapon, which is a shield. And you're given an offensive weapon, which is a sword. You know, and, you know, we have the answers to the world's problems. All these broken people that we go to, you know, we will drive hell out of that house and rescue them. And that's what we do. We rescue people, you know, from the darkness. And we see lots of uh, uh, power of God in people's lives, and changed lives, and addictions broken, and all this kind of thing. You know? So I want to encourage you to be a great warrior for Christ. So I'm going to come to an end of this and say, you know, the Bible tells us we have a great cloud of witnesses watching us to see what we're going to do with the power of God. The Bible tells us all the saints, those ones in the Hebrews 11, they conquered armies, put to flight the army of the aliens, they say, the, the, the uh, ungodly armies. They, um, you know, quenched the fire. They uh, were persecuted and overcame it. Out of weakness were made strong. You read that? That's the early church today. You had David's mighty men running through them, running through an army to get a pail of water, coming out, eating like asterisk and oblix, coming back out of that pail of water and giving it to David. You have Elysia standing in a, in a field uh, when the whole church runs away, pulls his sword out and whacks those Philistines and God uses him to be a brick, uh, 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 turn the whole thing, into, uh, Philistines, into defeat. Go read it. It's crazy stuff. But God's looking for mighty men and women like that today who will stand against 300 demons. You know what I mean? And stand for God in this dark world. You know, stop waiting for the enemy to attack us. Say, where are the enemy? Instead of the Spartans, they don't ask how many are the enemy. They say, where are the enemy? Where is the enemy? We should say that. You know, God, where can we go to rescue the lost? We'll go to that block over there. Okay, we'll go there. 
So God is looking for champions today. And that may be many of you hearing this message. God's chose you at this time on the planet to be on earth. Not in the medieval ages, not at any other age now. He chose you in the last greatest battle of the last days. All of us. You were put at this time here. Because God thought you'd be the best person for this time. So, let's get radical for the Lord. Um, you know, let's do something for it. You've got one life. One life. That's what I thought. I've got one life. How long am I going to be on this life? We don't know. You know, you don't know how long you're going to live. All of eternity, you know, relies on what we do for Christ in this life. Every missionary knows that. Gives up, you know, wealth and money to go be a missionary and sleep in the dirt because they know there are rewards in the next life. They understand that. Be soldier for Christ. I think of the, I'm going to end with the words of the great hymn, William Blake. When did he write that? 1800s or something or earlier? One of the verses says, Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I shall not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. The old saints used to call it building Jerusalem on earth. We war against the darkness. We push out the darkness out of our suburbs, out of our schools, and you're extending, in a way, a suburb of Jerusalem on earth. Peace and joy coming onto the earth. And that's what they understood. You know, and I love that. I love that heart. You know, or you will you take out your sword and do something for Christ, you know? You know, and... I was officiating at a memorial for a deceased paratrooper at one stage, and he was 10 years younger than I am, died in a bike accident. And I don't like doing funerals, so I don't know if the guy was saved, you know. And I wonder, was his life ready to meet Christ? And, uh, you know, I couldn't say on the radio that he was in heaven, but I could say to them, where is your life going? You know, where are you with Christ? And I read revelations about the book being opened, I've never been invited back to one of those again because they all just had to sit and listen to that. You know, I heard on the radio the one morning, seven people had died, you know, that morning as I was getting a taxi accident. And I'm thinking those people got up, washed their face that morning, brushed their teeth, and were thinking about their work. And oh, it's, they didn't know they got one hour left. None of them. One hour. Tick tock before they die. And they went to work not not having prepared maybe for eternity. I hope some did. Not having prepared and we did by nine o'clock in the morning. And that's how quickly it happens. That's how we're watching Oaks kill over like this at the moment. All younger than me, you know. It's terrible. So live your powerfully, you've got one life for Christ, live your life powerfully, sold out to Christ doing the word of God. We could re replace the word England in that hymn for South Africa in the Bible. You know? So I leave you with these words, do something important with your life, really for God. We have one chance to change the world around us, sign up for God's kingdom, learn to love God and be a conqueror.
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Any questions? No. All right, let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you that we could gather in your name tonight, Lord. I ask that you'd raise up your army, Lord, of the last days, even sitting here today, Lord, that you would inspire people to step up in the things of God, become soldiers for Christ, Lord. Um, do make a difference in this world, Lord. Help the broken and the shattered lives around us where no one else can help them, Lord. We can, with your word. Lord, help us to be those people, Lord. Help us to rescue the perishing, Lord. Make a difference in people's lives around us. All the days of our life, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.